0: Well, I I try not to uh, repeat illustrations I've used before too much, but I'm going to tell you a story that I've told you before. Uh, So if you remember the punchline, don't ruin it for your neighbor. But I had a friend in Bible college, uh, his name was Matt, who grew up in Ohio. Uh, He played basketball in high school. And uh, he talked about how um, there was this one Catholic school that they played against every once in a while that just they could never beat. just Any team that ever played this team just would get demolished because they had this one kid on the team that was so good uh, that there's just nothing they could do. In fact, he was so good that the coach would pull him at halftime just to let the other kids on the team have a chance to do something. And, and it wouldn't matter because he'd be so, so far ahead at that point that you know, the outcome was inevitable. Uh, you know, and he would talk about how it was just so demoralizing to play against his team because you know they would go do like, the high school sports thing, pep talk in the locker room, we're going to do this, we're going to give it our all, give 110%. And then they'd just go out and get demolished by this LeBron James kid. Now, as an adult, if you don't know basketball, LeBron James is one of the biggest NBA superstars in the world. Uh, As an adult, it's pretty cool to be able to say you played basketball against LeBron James when you were in high school. But as a high school student, I'm sure it was pretty awful. Uh, Do you know what I think would actually be almost as awful? Maybe even more awful? I don't know. Being on LeBron James' team in high school would be pretty awful, right? I mean, of course, you know you're going to win everything all the time. But wouldn't you think you'd kind of feel like an unnecessary addition to the team? Like, I feel like I, I would be on the team and just be like, the coach could have picked any three people from the school to come put on jerseys and just go on the court with LeBron and we'd still win. It doesn't matter. I don't need to be here. Just go out and let King James do his thing, Right? Oh, and What does it say about the, the fact that the coach would just pull him at, at halftime, not to be nice to the other team, but to be nice to your team, right? So that everyone else has a chance to actually play some basketball. You know, I know there's no, there's no I in team, right? But in this case, maybe there might have been an, an I or him in the team. Everyone else just is, isn't really part of the competition, right? You're, you're being allowed to participate. You're not really needed. You're, you're kind of useless, have you ever felt that way as a Christian? Do you ever look at yourself and, and kind of just feel like you're useless to God's team? You kind of feel like God made a mistake in, in saving you. There's nothing you really bring to the table. You look around you maybe and you see people who are so much more gifted than you are, right? They're more outgoing. They're better at talking to people. Maybe they're, they're smarter. They're able to understand the Bible better than you're able to. They're better able to talk about it, memorize it. Maybe they're just kinder than you are, they're more generous than you are, they're more bold in sharing their faith, you're just surrounded by people that you just know are, are better than you are. Or, or maybe you don't even look at other people, you just look at yourself and you see the depth of your own sin and you think, My God will never be able to use me for anything, right? He, he wouldn't want to, I'm such a mess. I, I think it's fair to say that all of us have felt that way at some level at different times in our lives, right? Right? But if we do, and when we do, it shows that we really don't understand ourselves the way that we ought to. We don't understand ourselves the way the Bible tells us to. We don't understand ourselves the way that God understands us. Today, we're looking at a passage in the Bible that's going to highlight several people that God has used significantly in the early church. These people, we would hear their names and we tend to think of them as sort of superstar Christians. Heroes of the faith. But this passage, if we pay attention to what it's saying, is going to upend our perception of them. And we're going to see that God doesn't see people the way that we see them. He doesn't see us the way we see ourselves. That's our big idea for today. God doesn't see us the way that we see ourselves. So, how does He see us? What is this passage going to show us? Well, instead of telling you, let's look at it together. Take a look at Acts chapter fifteen, verse thirty-six. And I'm realizing right now that I just cut off whoever's supposed to come up here and read scripture. So I apologize for that. Uh, <laughs> came up, I got too uh, too excited. So let me read the whole passage for you. Acts fifteen thirty-six. Sometime later, Paul said to Barnabas, "Let us go back and visit the believers in all the towns where we preach the word." Uh, of the Lord and see how they are doing. Barnabas wanted to take John, also called Mark, with them, but Paul did not think it was wise to take him because he had deserted them in Pamphylia and had not continued with them in, their, in the work. They had such a sharp disagreement that they parted company. Barnabas took Mark and sailed for Cyprus, but Paul chose Silas and left, commended by the believers to the grace of the Lord. He went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. Paul came to Derbe and then to Lystra, where they met a disciple named Timothy, or sort where a disciple named Timothy lived, whose mother was a, was a Jewish believer, but whose father was a Greek. The believers at Lystra and Iconium spoke well of them. Paul wanted to take him along on the journey, so he circumcised him and because of the Jews who lived in the, that area, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. As they traveled from town to town, they delivered the decisions reached by the apostles and elders in Jerusalem for the people to obey. So the churches were strengthened in the faith and grew daily in numbers. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So this passage uh, starts off in verse 36. Right? Sometime later, Paul said to Barnabas, let us go back and visit the believers in all the towns where we preach the word of the Lord and see how they're doing. So let let me remind you, any passage that starts out with sometime later, we need to think about what's, what's been going on so far, let me remind you the background, kind of give you a fly by, uh, you know, 10,000 feet uh, overview of what we've seen in the story of Acts so far. So, Christianity started off as a Jewish movement in Jerusalem, right? The message of salvation from sin through Jesus began to spread beyond Jerusalem and through the whole region. This spread happened mostly because there was a huge wave of persecution that came on the church, and the church had to scatter out of Jerusalem and, and spread in the, the area around them. The persecution was led by a Pharisee named Saul, and Saul hated Christians. He hated Christians so much that he wasn't just willing to or wasn't just satisfied with driving them out of Jerusalem. he chased them, hunted them down, followed them to see where, where they were. He wanted to follow them and arrest them. But one of the days that he was out on this hunt for Christians, he was met by Jesus on the road. He had a vision of the resurrected Christ, and through that experience, he was converted to Christianity, and all of a sudden, the zealous persecutor of Christians became a zealous Christian himself. But Paul had a problem that he had been this zealous persecutor of Christians, and so all the Christians were scared of him. They didn't didn't trust him. And nobody was willing to get near enough to him to get to know him until there was this man named Barnabas that came along. Barnabas is willing to take the risk and to get to know Saul, to spend time with him, to encourage him. And, and Barnabas vouched for Saul, and because he was respected and loved by the rest of the church, Paul was, or Saul was accepted. While all this is going on, the, the gospel, the good news of Jesus is spreading, continuing to spread throughout the region, and going to even the Gentile regions. The church of Jesus Christ that was born in Jerusalem has spread to other nations. And so a city north of Israel called Syrian Antioch has become now a hub of Christianity in a kind of multicultural way, right? There's in, in Antioch there are Jews and Gentiles who are living together and both groups of them have started coming to Christ. And so now there's this big multicultural church in Syrian Antioch and they become a hub of missions work beyond them. They, they're sending people out, sharing the gospel and part of what they do, the Lord uh, tells them, leads, tells the leadership of this church to send Saul and Barnabas out as missionaries. You see, Barnabas had gone to Syria and Antioch to say, hey, what's going on here? And when he saw what was going on there, he said, you know who would be amazing at, at helping this church is that guy Saul. Saul is perfectly suited by God to help here. So he, he went and found him and said, come along, I got a job for you to do. Come. And they, they, they were part of the church for a long time. And while they were there, Saul started going by Paul, which is a more Gentile version of his name. And then the two of them went off to be missionaries together. We've seen the past few weeks that they went on this months-long missionary trip through danger and peril. And they spread the gospel to the people in the regions of Galatia and in Cyprus. Um, Galatia is part of what today is known as Turkey. And a lot of people had come to know Jesus, and a lot of churches were started. And on that journey, we read earlier in chapter 15, that they had taken a young man with them named Mark also known as John. John Mark, they call him. And he had started off well, but as soon as things started to get really hard, he had bailed on them. He had abandoned them. He said, this is too much. I can't do it. And he left. And, you know, God had taken care of Barnabas and Paul on their trip, but it had been a big blow to them. So Barnabas, Barnabas and Paul, they finished their mission trip. They come back to, to, uh, to Syria and Antioch. And while they're there, there's a whole new controversy that comes up because the Jewish Christians, hearing about how so many Gentiles are becoming Christians, have a some questions about that theologically and so they go and they, they say you know do the, Jewish, the Gentile people need to become Jewish before they can become Christians so they need to have their males be circumcised and they need to follow the law of Moses and so they had a big meeting down in Jerusalem and they said no that's that's not what we need to do they can follow Jesus without becoming Jewish first and then they've come back and said hey here's what the council has decided so all, all that background is important for the passage we're looking at today Because now, in chapter 15, verse 36, Paul and Barnabas are going to go back to the churches that they already visited and say, hey, let's tell them what the church in Jerusalem decided. Let's make sure they understand the gospel, and they're not going to be sidetracked by people who will tell them differently. Let's go strengthen and encourage them and visit them and see how they're doing. So these two friends and ministry partners are going to go do that, but there's a problem. Verse 37 says, Barnabas wanted to take John also called Mark with them. But Paul did not think it was wise to take him because he had deserted them in Pamphylia and had not continued with them in the work. So Barnabas wants to give Mark another chance. Paul doesn't. So we got a disagreement on our hands. All right, these are godly men, right? These are missionaries who've been ministers together and they they love each other, they respect each other. They've been through so much together. How do they resolve this problem? Look at verse 39. They had such a sharp disagreement that they parted company. Barnabas took Mark and sailed for Cyprus, but Paul chose Silas and left, commended by the believers to the grace of the Lord. He went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. This is briefly told to us, but we need to understand here that this is not an amicable split. They didn't decide together that for the sake of Jesus their best course of action was to part ways, it says they had a sharp disagreement. The language there in, in Greek speaks of a passionately angry argument. This is a shouting match that ends in divorce. This should make you feel a bit sick as you read it. This, this would be like if you came to church next week and Aaron got up to make an announcement that I had gone to plant a church down the street and taken Mark with me. And, and, and okay, that, that's a good thing, right? We, we, should, we would mourn you know, losing me and Mark, I hope, but we'd also celebrate, okay, this is good ministry, but... Well, that's kind of strange. It's very abrupt, and Aaron looks a little hurt and angry. He's missing a tooth. <laughs> that's unrelated, actually. But in, uh, and, you, and you find out, oh, this wasn't you know, a godly decision. This was, this was a breakup, right? That, that would be devastating for our church, wouldn't it? And then add to the fact that Paul and Barnabas are way cooler than Aaron and I are, right? Paul's a, an apostle, for goodness sakes. He wrote most of the books in the New Testament. How, how could this happen? Do you know what? We're not told this in here. The account's very brief, but I'm pretty sure this split was Paul's fault. We get pretty clear portraits of Paul and Barnabas' personalities in the New Testament and this absolutely seems like a Paul thing. Barnabas is, is portrayed as this, just the sweetest guy ever, right? He's Everyone loves him, everyone trusts him, he's faithful, he's generous, he's compassionate. He's not going to stir the pot, right? He's not going to lean into an argument. He, he's so gentle and kind that the one fault that we see of him in the New Testament happens in Galatians chapter 2, when this whole conflict between the Jews and the Gentiles are happening, and they're wondering whether or not Gentiles need to become Jewish before they can become a Christian. He doesn't want to stir the pot, so he just kind of goes along with the crowd. And, and Paul is actually surprised how easily, uh, the fact that, that Barnabas goes along with this group, he, he's, like, he, he respects Barnabas, Paul does. And so Galatians chapter 2 verse 13 says, even Barnabas was led astray. He's just like, can you believe that? Like, that's incredible. But Barnabas wasn't the guy who's going to lean into a fight. His name, by the way, isn't Barnabas. His name's Joseph. The first time we meet him in Acts chapter 4 verse 32, we're told his name is Joseph and everyone calls him Barnabas, which means the son of encouragement. He was such an encouraging guy that everyone just started calling him that. Barnabas was the one who was known to be willing to take a risk on a guy like Paul. Be willing to take a risk on a guy like Mark. Paul, on the other hand, was the complete opposite. right? He's a firebrand. While, while Barnabas was led astray and kind of just went with the crowd, Paul stood up in front of everybody and called Peter out on his hypocrisy. Like the most senior apostle in the church, Paul calls him out in front of the whole group in the cafeteria and says, you should not be doing this, Peter. Doesn't mind doing that at all, right? Paul is as zealous as they come. He was a zealous Jewish person uh, going after the Christians, hunting them down and willing to throw Christians in jail or worse. And now he's a zealous Christian being willing uh, willing to be thrown into jail or worse, for the sake of Christ. Right, he's already been stoned to death. They just weren't as thorough as they thought. He's willing to give everything up for Christ. And he expects everyone around him to do the same. So if you think that this is a Barnabas thing, I don't, I don't think that's probably true. This is, this is probably Paul. But whoever's to blame, what we should get out of this is that this is sad. Right? these are two brothers in Christ they're friends who love and respect each other they can't continue to work together to spread the gospel anymore it's awful there, there have been sad stories before this in the book of Acts Right, we've seen the Christians face all kinds of persecutions and obstacles but this is the first time that the problem has come from two Christians, two leaders in the church who just can't agree they have a blowout fight and they have to part company it, it, it's sad in a different way But in every trial the church has faced so far in Acts, in every threat, in every arrest, in every beating that they've gone through, in every death that they've faced, they've never been defeated. And let me tell you something. That's not because the people of God in the early church were superheroes. It's because Jesus was at work. So so here's the point of, of what I'm saying here. Among God's people, there are no legends. Only one Lord. Right? Among God's people, there are no legends, there's only one Lord. There's no superhero Christians. We just follow the God who is the true God. We follow Jesus who is the Lord of all. We, we look at the, the New Testament, we see Paul and Barnabas as exceptional men. And in many ways they, they were. But they're just men. Right? The, Paul and Barnabas are not the heroes of the book of Acts. They're not on a different level than the rest of us. No, not even Paul, whose missionary work fills the second half of Acts, right? The, a lot of this book is about what he does. But he's not the hero of Acts. Jesus is the hero of Acts, right? If you were to go back and look at Acts chapter 1, verse 1, Luke, who is writing Acts, says, I started my first volume, the, the Gospel of Luke, as an account of everything that Jesus began to do and began to teach on earth, began to do, and began to teach. The implication being this second volume is going to continue that, what Jesus continues to do and continues to teach on earth. Even though he, in the first chapter, he raises up into heaven, Gospel, or the, the book of Acts is how Jesus continued to do and teach through his word as the apostles and the rest of the church were filled by the Holy Spirit and took the message of Jesus and spread it around the world. Jesus is the hero. Paul and Barnabas got to play a significant part in Jesus' missions, but they weren't super saints, they weren't superheroes, they are just like you and me. You may have a hard time believing that, but have you ever read First and Second Corinthians and looked in those, those books at what Paul's relationship was to the church in Corinth? Right? Paul, had, on his, one of his missions trips, which we'll see later, started the church there, and he's writing these letters now for a number of reasons, but, but one of the reasons is because the people in those churches had stopped really caring what Paul thought they were kind of turning aside from him because they, just, they were like, you know what, he's not really that impressive. There's better teachers that we could follow. We don't really want to follow him anymore. 2 Corinthians in particular talks about how Paul had this, this ongoing problem, health problem. He calls it his thorn in his flesh that God had given him to humble him. But he's like, well, you guys see that as a, a down thing, a you know, bad thing. You know, God's given this for my good. He even says, you know, some of you guys say that when, when I'm with you, I'm not a very impressive speaker. I'm not very engaging. My words aren't very weighty in person. It's kind of hard to imagine anyone thinking about that about the apostle Paul, but he was just a guy. He was just a man that God used in amazing ways, but not because of anything special about him. God used Paul and Barnabas. He used the different personalities and their giftings for his glory, but it wasn't anything that they brought to the table that made them usable. It was just their faithfulness to spread the message about Jesus. It was God's word, God's Holy Spirit that did the work. God's word couldn't be stopped. And it wasn't because Paul and Barnabas were extra holy either. They were sinners, as you see in this passage, right? Whether Barnabas was, sometimes just went along with the crowd too easily or Paul was the opposite and could be a bit fiery and they can't get along. These men are sinners, Both of them. And God still uses them in spite of their sin. In fact, this passage shows us that even in his sovereignty, he uses them through their sin. The result of this division could have been a big problem for the church. But what we see in this passage is that they go out with the blessing of the church, and now instead of having one missions team, they've got two missions teams that are going around to strengthen the churches and spread the gospel. Barnabas takes marks and sails to the island of Cyprus, And Paul takes Silas, we met earlier in chapter 15, and they head by land into Turkey, going kind of the other way on their journey. Right? On God's team, there's no legends. There's only one Lord. There's no King James, there's only King Jesus. And yeah, he could use anyone to fill out the jersey for him and get on the court. Right? You and I have nothing significant to offer Jesus. But here's the important thing He chose us anyway. All he requires of us is is to show up and be faithful as he does the real work. But there's more to see in this passage than just this. So let's keep going. Chapter 16 starts off with Paul and Silas traveling through Turkey. And on the way, Paul meets a young man who's very different from Mark. Chapter 16, verse 1. Paul came to Derbe, then to Lystra. We saw those names on the missions trip a few weeks ago. And in Lystra there was a disciple named where a disciple named Timothy lived whose mother was, was Jewish and a believer but whose father was a Greek. The believers at Lystra and Iconium spoke well of him. Paul wanted to take him on the journey so he circumcised him because of the Jews who lived in the area for they all knew that his father was a Greek. Now, if you were here for those last couple sermons about circumcision, there's probably a question that comes into your mind right away. But before we get there, let's, let's back up and understand what's going on here. Paul had been burned by Mark. But that doesn't mean he's gun shy about taking somebody else on uh, under his wing as a protege. He meets Timothy and he's impressed with him and he wants to take him on the journey. But again, there's there's a problem. The problem is Timothy is mixed race. He's half Jewish, half Greek. His mom, whose name we find out in the letter of 2 Timothy, is Eunice. His mom is Jewish and she did a a great job loving him and, and working in his life to help him to teach him to love God and to be faithful to the scriptures. And now, because of the missions work of Paul and Barnabas, she and her son Timothy have turned not just from Judaism or not just to Judaism but now to Christianity. So that's true of his mom, but his dad was a pagan, was an unbelieving pagan. He didn't believe in the God of the Bible, he believed in the Greek pantheon, Zeus, and all those guys. And so what's, what's the problem? Why does that matter? Well, Timothy's unbelieving dad wouldn't let the mom get Timothy circumcised when he was a baby. He was uncircumcised. Now we just spent a long time talking about how that does not matter, right? You're not saved because you get circumcised. So who cares <laughs> if, if Timothy's not circumcised? Well, every Jewish person that knew him growing up cares. Timothy has been looked at his entire life as Eunice's half-Greek uncircumcised boy. He's been a cautionary tale his whole life of what happens if you marry outside the faith. Even though he loved God and he was devoted to scriptures, he had this reputation he couldn't shake. And so Paul, I mean get this, this is is huge, right? Paul who spoke out so vehemently against requiring circumcision circumcision, says says to Timothy, hey listen bud, this is going to be a distraction. Are you willing to get circumcised now and just remove the distraction? And Timothy says, yeah, let's do it. Why, why would Paul ask that of Timothy? Why would Timothy agree? Right, He's like a young man at this point. What we're seeing here is that, as we said before, Paul is willing to give up everything for the sake of Jesus. He's like, I'm gonna go and I'm gonna share the gospel and whatever it takes outside of sin, I'm gonna do it so people can hear the truth about who Jesus is. And Paul doesn't just do that himself, he expects everyone else to do it too. And in Timothy, he finds somebody who is willing to do that. Right? Timothy does not need to get circumcised. He is a Christian, he is saved. It is not important for himself in any way, shape, or form. But he's willing to go through suffering, literal, physical suffering, so that the other Jews that they're trying to minister to won't be distracted. So while Mark gave up his ministry when the suffering began, Timothy began his ministry literally by suffering. And God used him on the mission. Look at verse 4. As they traveled from town to town, they delivered the decisions reached by the apostles. That's that, this guy who just got circumcised says, you don't have to get circumcised, they told us that. They delivered the decisions reached by the apostles and the elders in Jerusalem for the, for the people to obey. And verse 5 tells us the response. So the churches were strengthened in the faith and grew, number, grew daily in numbers. Timothy is one of the most significant characters in the New Testament. He's a companion of Paul for much of the rest of Acts. He's trusted by Paul to undertake special missions. He co-authors a bunch of Paul's letters. If you ever look at some of the beginnings of the epistles, it'll say Paul and Silas or Paul and Timothy and Silas. He's there with them when he writes this. And eventually he's tasked with pastoring the church in Ephesus. That's why Paul writes 1 and 2 Timothy to him because he's a pastor there. We're going to see when, in a few months when we get to uh, the part in Acts when he goes to Ephesus. that Ephesus is a tough town; it's a tough place to be a pastor. And if he's assuming that he's the same Timothy that's mentioned in Hebrews thirteen twenty three, then we know he spent some jail. Some, some he spent some time in jail for the sake of Christ. He suffered for Jesus. He's everything that Paul was looking for in a protege. But guess what? Mark does pretty well for himself too. He started off as a failure. He started off as a coward. Right? Not only did he abandon Paul and Barnabas on their first trip, but even before that, he's probably the man in Mark 14.52 that when Jesus is arrested in the garden and everyone flees, they, the guards grab this young man by his tunic and he squirms out of his clothes and runs naked into the night. I mean, that's a pretty embarrassing story, right? Like, I wouldn't want to be that guy. The only gospel that includes that is the gospel that Mark went on to write. So Mark the failure, Mark the coward, went on to write one of the four gospels. And in, so in 2 Timothy, 2 Timothy is a letter that Paul writes to Timothy right at the end of Paul's life. He's, he's in jail again, he gets arrested a few times, and he says, this is it, I'm, I'm, I'm going out this time, I'm, I'm going to be with the Lord, I'm going to get executed. And so he kind of is his last message to Timothy. And one of the things he says at the end there is he says, Timothy, I want you to come visit me one last time. But then he also says a couple of verses later in 2 Timothy 4.11, Timothy 4, 11, He says to Timothy, get Mark and bring him with you because he is helpful to me in my ministry. Because of Barnabas' influence in Mark's life, giving giving him another chance, Mark ends up doing okay. And I, I want to tell you the point of all this, but before I do, there's another character that is easy to skip over, but I think is really important for us to notice in this passage. Timothy's mom, Eunice, is a really important person in this passage. Right? She's a Jewish woman who married a Greek man. She married a pagan unbeliever. This was against God's commands. Right? God says very specifically in his word that his people should not marry people who don't love him. But we also need to understand that back then she probably didn't have a say in who she got married to in the same way that we would today. Right? Her father probably arranged this. either way, there, there are consequences that come from her marriage, not the least of which is that her son has a disadvantage in his community the whole life, his whole life because he's raised by an unbelieving father who wouldn't allow him to be circumcised. And yet she, as a godly woman, worked hard to raise her son to love God, to love his word. Back in 2 Timothy, Paul speaks to Timothy about the sincere faith that his mother had and that his mother passed on to him. He also talks about how She had taught him to trust God's word from infancy, right from the beginning. She'd been telling him about God's word. And it had worked. Here's why I want to just take a minute to think about this lady Eunice, right? So often when we think about doing great things for God, we think about pastors, evangelists, missionaries, and the like. We think about people who lead ministries and serve with titles. But one of the most significant titles that you can have when you're serving God is the title of mom. I'm not. That's not overstating it. Being a mom is so important. The Bible teaches that only men should be pastors. The Bible teaches that men should be the heads of their households, but that doesn't shove women into the margins of significance. Being a mom is just one example of how women can serve God in a significant way. There's many other ways. Not everyone here has become a mother or will become a mother. There are other ways to serve, but focusing in on this because it shows up in our passage. It's so important. Our world tells us, tells women, that finding success in your career is the most important thing you can do, but it's not. If God's given you a family to love, To care for, to shepherd, to disciple, to point to Jesus, there is no more significant task that you can do. That's not just true of women, that's true of men too, right? Men, we can't just say, well, I'm going to do my job and women have to take care of this. Our job as parents, men and women, fathers and mothers, is to put our kids first and teach them about Jesus. But I think women need to hear this as an affirmation, particularly, Your your life as a mom, if that's what you are doing, is not a second-class ministry. If you sacrifice for your kids, you're not putting your life on hold. You're not putting your significance on hold. You're not putting your ministry on hold. You may feel that way. You may be told that, but it's not true. You're serving God in a meaningful, beautiful way, so pour everything you have into it. Whether your kids are young or they're out of the house, that is an important ministry for you to have. God can and will use you in the life of your children, like he used Eunice in the life of Timothy, even without the support of her husband. So, so here, here's what I want to say about all this, kind of summarizing it up. If we're tempted to see people like Paul and Barnabas as heroes, we could just as likely be uh, tempted to see people like Mark and Timothy and Eunice as insignificant characters who aren't worth much. Right? Now, we know that Mark goes on to write one of the Gospels. That's a big deal. And Timothy goes on to be a significant church leader. But when we meet them in this story, Mark has been written off by basically everyone as a coward and a failure. And Timothy, though people thought highly of him in, his, you know, in the believing community around him, he was largely written off because of his background. It took Barnabas to see the worth in in Mark and Paul to see the work in Timothy so that that they could grow in their faith and be useful to the Lord. But but here's the main point. Among God's people, there are no losers. There are only those who are loved. Just like there are no legend, there's only one Lord, there are no losers, there are only those who are loved. Jesus hadn't written off Mark, and Jesus hadn't written off Timothy, and Jesus hadn't written off Eunice. He doesn't see us like others do. He doesn't see us like we see ourselves. Let me, let me read you a passage from First, Tim, uh, First Corinthians. First Corinthians chapter 1, Paul talks to these, these Corinthians Christians about, here's the kind of people that God calls to himself. Listen to this, 1 Corinthians 1.26. Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called by God that he's talking about. Not many of you are wise by human standards. Not many of you are influential. Not many of you are of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. Wow, thanks a lot, Paul. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things. The things that are not to nullify the things that are. So that no one may boast before him. It's because of him that you are in Christ Jesus. Who has become for us Wisdom from God. That is our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let, let the one who boasts boast in the Lord. Now, let me summarize that for you. God doesn't choose the wise, influential, noble, strong, great, good, or beautiful. He chooses the foolish, the despised, the lowly, the weak, the small, the sinful, and the ugly. so that through us he can show the world not how great we are, but how great he is. He can show through the mess of our lives how wonderful his redemption is and how great his love is and how amazing his mercy is. How powerful he is to change us. But truthfully, we are all unworthy of Jesus, right? We know that. We are all sinners. We don't deserve God's love. But he gives it to us freely. If we don't know that, even though if we can say it with our mouths, if we don't really know it, if we think we're the heroes of the story, we have no place with him. But to any who know we don't deserve God's love, who know we don't deserve God's forgiveness, he offers forgiveness, he offers love, and he offers belonging. For if we're willing to acknowledge that Jesus is the hero, Jesus is the Lord, and we're willing to turn from our sin and trust him, his death and resurrection pays for our sin. That is true for each and every one of us in here. If you need to hear that again as a Christian this week, you need to remember that it's true, or if you need to understand it for the first time, I just I, I ask and plead with you to consider it and to turn to Christ today. And sometimes certain kinds of sin or even certain kinds of life circumstances can disqualify you from certain kinds of service for God, like being a pastor or being a missionary. But every single one of us, no matter what's gone on in our lives, no matter who we are, what we've done, is loved by God. And we're called not just to be, you know, come and find forgiveness, but to do what Paul and Barnabas and Mark and Timothy and Eunice did. And that's just to make the disciples. All of us are called to do that. To share the gospel, to encourage others with God's word, to point them to Jesus as our hero, as our Lord. You know, that's true whether you're a gentle encourager or a fiery confronter. That's true whether you're fearful by nature or naturally willing to suffer whether you're a church leader or a stay-at-home mom or anything else, God just calls us to be faithful. He chose you and it wasn't a mistake. So get out in the court and let King Jesus do his work.